In this episode, Sean Luke of Anglican Aesthetics joins us to talk about the doctrine of sola scriptura. And this particular doctrine is the center of a lot of debates between Roman Catholics and Protestants. On the one hand, Roman Catholics say that Protestants devolve into subjectivity and interpretive pluralism, and they ignore the witness of the church with this doctrine. But Sean Luke comes on and he helps us think well by looking at what the church fathers and the reformers actually believed. He also advocates for the position of sola apostolica as a way to press the conversation forward and demonstrate that the reformers were the true heirs of the apostolic teaching. We also talk about issues with Roman Catholic claims about doctrinal development, papal declarations about dogma, and the role of personal judgment. And finally, we end the conversation with a nice little discussion about the episcopacy and the future of Catholic-Protestant dialogue and a potential plan for reunification. It's a really great episode, a lot of great content. Sean was an awesome guest. Hope you guys enjoy and appreciate this interview. Welcome to That'll Preach. This is Brian. I'm with Paul, my co-host. We've got a special guest today. We've got Sean Luke from Anglican Aesthetics, which is a YouTube channel where he discusses apologetics, theology, and philosophy with the aim of showing the beauty of God revealed in and through Jesus Christ. Sean Luke has also been involved in a lot of ecumenical dialogues with Roman Catholics, and he's written a lot of good stuff and also uh, talked about a lot of great stuff regarding the differences between Protestants and Catholics. And one particular doctrine that I think he's been very helpful uh, on is the doctrine of sola scriptura, which is very important mm -hmm. to the Reformation. Um, but he also has some interesting nuances to it that I thought were really helpful as well. So we're glad to have you on the show. Thanks for being here with us, Sean. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. This is probably the most multicultural podcast we've ever recorded. I knew you were going to be kind of that. <laughs> I mean, just have to. Like, a Chinese guy, an Egyptian guy. Indian. An Indian guy. Yeah. That's right. Our combined SAT score is just out of the it's, <laughs> yeah. it's unbelievable, you know. But uh yeah, yeah, there we go. There we go. The, the diversity. We got it out of the way. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> but uh Sean, yeah, like I mentioned in the introduction, really appreciated some of the work you've done with Gavin Ortland and just on your own channel, talking about uh, I think in a very charitable way, um, the differences between Protestants and Roman Catholics. And for me, solo scriptura, that seems like a really key issue. Um, but there are a lot of caricatures, both Catholics projecting them onto Protestants and also Protestants perhaps projecting it onto themselves. Yeah. yeah. So maybe begin by talking about how you started yeah. on your own personal journey of studying the doctrine of soul secure and then a, a good way of understanding it and you could even go into i know you have a different way of formulating it i think you call it sola apostolica or something like that you can explain yep, that a little right. bit but maybe start with the personal and then you can move yeah. to a good way yeah. of thinking about soul scripture for sure well yeah thanks again for having me on um for me this really started in 2021 uh 2020 2021 uh what happened is in my first year of seminary at the end of my first year uh, I became convinced of pedo-baptism. So I was a Reformed Baptist, and I moved towards infant baptism, which has implications for how you think about the doctrine of the church. And as I thought more about the doctrine of the church, 
and I learned more about Roman Catholic theology, I realized I had no idea what the issues of the Reformation were actually were. were. All of the issues I thought were the issues were actually not the issues. <laughs> uh, and so Luther and Calvin would have looked Roman Catholic to the context I had come from. Uh, and that was pretty jarring to me. So I realized, okay, if I'm if I'm going to land either Protestant or Roman Catholic, I actually really have to dig into these issues. Uh, and so that launched about a year and a half. I'd just gotten married. It was my second year of marriage. And my wife is a Lutheran become Anglican who still has a lot of her Lutheran sort of proclivities. And so that led to a lot of, she's also theologically brilliant, theologically very gifted, philosophically gifted. And so it led to a lot of conversations between the two of us uh, as I was really wrestling. And she she told me something that was just really helpful. She was like, look, if you're going to do RCIA, if you're really thinking about that, then you need to read the sources and you need to make sure you know what the issues were. And that means getting away from a lot of the contemporary discussions and trying to trying to figure out what, what, what were the issues they were dialoguing at the Reformation. So that had me reading like Bellarmine and Martin Chemnitz and Johann Gerhard and um, John Eck even. So Roman Catholics and Protestants at the Reformation trying to figure out what the issue was. And pretty quickly, actually, after looking at the Reformational sources, I became convinced of Protestantism, uh, that the Reformers were right. Um, in their central critiques. And in particular, I became convinced of the Anglican expression of Protestantism that holds to a very high view of, uh, I don't want to insult other Protestant traditions, but a kind of high, higher view of the visible church, um, I would say, and a, and a high view of the role of the institutional church, uh, while yet accepting some of the core doctrines of the Reformation. So that was my entry point into it. And the first question you sort of have to wrestle with there is uh, the question of epistemology, uh, particularly how do we come to know doctrine? What's the principle of theology? And William Whitaker, um, his book, A Disputation on Holy Scripture, was a huge watershed for me because he, what he does is he quotes church father after church father after church father and is making actually more patristic arguments than his Roman Catholic opponents. And then you see that in William Perkins, you actually start to see that in Richard Hooker, John Jewell. So the Anglican divines in particular start resourcing the church fathers uh, to show that actually they're more Catholic was their argument. Um, so to be Protestant in its original sense is actually to be more Catholic than Roman Catholics are which was a very different way of thinking about Protestantism. So that was that was sort of my on-ramp onto, onto thinking about this issue. I actually uh, read, I, I'm still working through it, William Whitaker's book because of something you had suggested on, on another podcast. Mm -hmm. And I looked through it and I was like, dang, this guy's like outflanking the Catholics. I mean, he's yeah. really, you know, the, the common trope is, you know, read the church fathers, you'll cease to be Protestant. And I'm like, mm. I don't know, this dude uh, knows the church fathers. I mean, he's, yeah, quoting Augustine over and against his interoculars who are Roman Catholic. Yep. And it, it, to me, I was kind of like, when I speak with Roman Catholics about issues of the canon or specifically the Apocrypha or the Deuterocanonical yep. can, canonical books, it's it gets very abstract and philosophical and like, and then I'm like, wait a minute. Like Whitaker's just like, just read the thing, man. Like, <laughs> like you can just look yep. at them. There's historical errors. You know, you can list, just just get into the actual text. Mm. And uh, that was a very, very fascinating book. Very thorough. I mean, almost painstakingly where I'm like, all right, I got to skip through some of this because like yeah. at the idea, but a very thorough 
refutation of the the Deuter, the deuterocanonical books as as part of the the actual canon. Yep, yep, and yeah, I mean that was a that was a really shocking thing too. Is that with the Anglican divines, they kept the deuterocanonical books in scripture, but as not proto-canonical. Right. Not, right. They're they're good books. They're sure. good, nourishing books but they're not at the level of the canon. And one of the key arguments was that it's because of reception history. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. It was shocking. That was a very different argument than what we're used to making in Protestant, in contemporary Protestant circles. But his argument was actually that it wasn't Catholicly received because you have saints like Hugh of St. Victor all the way in the medieval ages disputing, all the way actually up to his day. So interestingly, um, Cardinal Cajetan, uh, he, before the Council of Trent, did dispute whether the Apocrypha should be yeah. in the king. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, the Council of Trent happens, and then he doesn't. But up to that, you had a widespread disagreement about the status of the Apocrypha. And so Whitaker's point was like, how in the world could this be Catholic if we still haven't come to a consensus about these books? Well, I mean, yeah, I that, that, that point does – it seems like it, it's – a point that a Protestant will find really, really sort of like nail in the coffin. But sometimes I hear from Catholics that, well, it's not just about how early or how widely something yep. is received because they have this idea of development. Right. And so it's it's almost like, yeah, we, we shouldn't expect to find uniformity. We shouldn't expect to find wide consensus at the early stages because yep. the deposit of faith is being developed and the church is unfurling and expounding the deposit of faith. And, and that, that includes, you know, and accommodates Aquinas's weird views on the Immaculate Conception. And it, it allows for a sort of, you know, there's an unfurling of revelation in a real genuine sense. Um, yeah. And so what, what, what would you say to yeah, that's good Catholics who, who want to make that sort of point? Yep. Say, well, yeah, we're not bothered by the absence of this in the early stages because we've got development and the church can, yep. can add things. And just, yep. just for yep. our viewers, the, 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 what we're talking about are, in the Catholic Old Testament, they have a handful of additional books that they consider inspired scripture that Protestants don't have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, anyway, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, no, it's a good question. So thinking about that question is actually sort of what led me to this concept of sola apostolica. Okay. Interestingly, in De Verbum, so it's a dogmatic constitution promulgated at Vatican II, uh, that sort of gives more more of an insight into how how does the doctrine of revelation work in Roman Catholic theology, and the magisterium in Dei Verbum is claimed to be nothing more than an expositor of what was handed on from the apostles. Right. So that means that they can't add anything to the apostolic teaching even by their own lights. All they do is even if in an inspired manner, all they do is unpack the apostolic teaching. Well, if that's the case then we should be able to see a connection between what they're teaching and the apostolic teaching and the sort of the the deposit of faith being the teachings of the prophets and the apostles passed down. We should be able to track that. The problem is that we can't with something like the Apocrypha, because if there's widespread disagreement on this, and if we know that first century Judaism didn't see the Apocrypha as inspired, then it becomes very difficult, actually, nearly impossible to, to maintain the claim that, yeah, this was something taught by the apostles when they would have had to go against their culture. And we have no evidence that the immediate descendants, in fact, we have counter evidence mm. that the immediate sort of um, uh, genealogical ecclesial descendants of the apostles uh, 
didn't regard the Apocrypha as scripture, at least not in the same way they regarded the proto-canon as scripture. Using to unpack that, and I think Roman Catholics would have to agree, well, it has to be faithful to the apostolic teaching, which right. means that there actually is a principle of authority we can go back to and argue from that principle of authority that we should prioritize scripture. So that's the common ground in these debates where you can say, you may not affirm sola scriptura, but there's right. at least some kind of common ground. We can both say, yeah, we we affirm that that at least the teaching of the apostles is going to be right our our, our bedrock. Yep. Um, so how does yep. that? How would you define sola scriptura in light of? Yeah, great question. So sola scriptura, and I, I've said this in in other videos, but sola scriptura is not the idea that scripture is the only source of doctrine. Mm -hmm. That's a very common misconception. So because people will then try to give these quick refutations of, well, you know, scripture doesn't have its own book of contents, therefore it's wrong. <laughs> yeah, sola scriptura is wrong. Well, that it would be wrong if sola scriptura claimed to be the only source of doctrine, but it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Sola scriptura claims that scripture alone is the sole infallible rule of faith, right. the sole final rule of faith. So I've used the language before of maybe we maybe we talk about this in terms of prima scriptura just to give terminological clarification that scripture has primacy over everything else is the ultimate judge over everything else and holds the tradition that of exposition of exposition that comes after scripture holds that to account. Hmm. So one could call it prima scriptura, but sola scriptura is that idea that scripture is the sole infallible rule. Now, interestingly, the reason I prefer language like sola apostolica and prima scriptura is actually for a Protestant reason. Johann Gerhard actually points out, so this idea of sola apostolica, it's not, I hope, unique to me. I've, I've tried to model it off of what the magisterial reformers taught. Uh, Johann Gerhard, in his book on scripture, uh, he actually says, yes, if we if we lived in the first century and the apostles were alive, we wouldn't hold to sola scriptura. But they're not alive anymore. <laughs> they died. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's an interesting point because then what he's saying is that it's not that we hold to sola scriptura because we have a script, a sort of scriptural argument for sola scriptura. Rather, it's a principle uh, by which we're preserving primitive teaching, teaching that mm -hmm. goes back to the apostles. So Gerhard's argument for sola scriptura, uh, at least what he calls sola scriptura, what might be called today prima scriptura, uh, is that the scriptures, the actual books that were canonized, on historical grounds, we can actually know that they're written at the close of the first century. Mm -hmm. And so they're actually most proximate to the apostles. They're written within the lifetime of the apostles. And so either by apostles or by those who are really close companions writing down their testimony uh, and condensing their testimony and expressing their teaching, such that the whole New Testament canon just is the apostolic teaching reduced to written form. So Gerhard uses this idea of uh, scripture being the sort of external accident, the the writing of scripture being the external accident mm. of the word of God. Uh, and I think that's actually a very helpful category because he's acknowledging that, yeah, the apostles in their oral teaching, they taught the word of God, yeah. but we hold to sola scripture in light of the fact that they're, they're with Jesus now. And so we need some principle by which we preserve their teaching and constantly go back to their teaching. And that principle is scripture, because scriptures, the, the, these are the books that are actually either penned by apostles or close enough to them so as to be recording their testimony. So you would say that in the early church, you did have those, quote unquote, two streams of authority. You had the sure. written documents that were being written, 
Yeah. You had the oral teaching of the apostles that was authoritative. Yeah. Well, and, so I, I would nuance that different. So okay. Gerhard would say those are sort of two accidents of the one common source. I see. Okay. Which is the apostolic teaching. Okay. Gotcha. Hmm. And Catholics would differ post-death of the apostles. They would say that that oral tradition mm -hmm. continues alongside that written tradition. Where it seems like what you're saying is the oral tradition stops with the apostles. Yep. Um, but now the principle is what we have left are the written documents that give right. us what we need. Yeah. So, so interestingly, Roman Catholic. So yes, you, you'll hear this two streams streams language in Roman Catholic theology. But in Dei Verbum, it's claimed that the oral tradition is just the passing on of the apostolic teaching. So yeah. that's really that's really interesting because if that's the claim, what that opens up, and this is actually a huge reason I decided on Protestantism. It opens up that claim to examination uh, because they've just they've just made the move to say that all of the things that they're passing on. Some Roman Catholics will say uh, actually um, Scripture is material sufficient, materially sufficient for doctrine, but not formally sufficient. So you need sort of the te the teaching authority to exposit infallibly Scripture to get doctrine from it. That's not a dogmatized stance. The more classic position at Trent was the sort of two streams view, mm -hmm. uh, where you have the oral tradition. But all of that was actually considered reducible to the teaching of the prophets and the apostles. Now, if that's the case, if that's the claim that they're going to make, historical investigation becomes really important. Because if we can show actually there were doctrines that were that were only dogmatized or taught far after the apostles, then it doesn't make sense to say, to, to require for salvation to believe that some of these doctrines go back to the apostles. Yeah. What 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 are some examples of those kinds of doctrines or yeah. dogmas that you think are not evidenced in the early apostolic tradition yeah. that the Roman yeah. Catholic Church has has basically made at the level of doctrine and and, and yeah. actually made it necessary for salvation and things like that. And so yeah, yeah, good what, question. What are some what are some examples of those? Yeah. So one clear one would be the bodily assumption to Mary. Uh, okay. Gavin Whitland did a very good video tracing the development of that doctrine. Mm -hmm. It's basically absent for the first four or five centuries of church history. And the first time Mary's fate is investigated into, uh, the, the I believe it was Epiphanius uh, who says that he goes to Jerusalem and he basically says no one knows what happened to her. Uh, so if that's the case, right, this doctrine is absent from the first five centuries. There's live dispute over what, what's happened, and people like Apophanius are saying, yeah, no one really knows what happened to her body. Then it's it's actually it's kind of crazy to require that for salvation, yeah. to require that that to that uh to believe that that goes to the apostles is sort of somehow necessary to mm. the nature of saving faith can't be inferred from the first five centuries, unless you want to say most of those church fathers were damned, which Rome doesn't want to say. Hmm. So that becomes a very a, a big problem for their structure of authority. Yeah. Is that a doctrine they consider if you deny the assumption yeah. of Mary, you're, you're damned? Yep, per Vatican I. So at least classically. Now, again, things get fuzzier in the application yeah, of sure. that in that post-Vatican II. But yeah, in under Vatican I, if you denied the assumption, you were considered cut off from Christ. Wow. I tell my friends sometimes who, who are Catholic, I'm like, man, if I were being Catholic, I'd be I'd be SSPX, I'd be trad yeah. cat, I'd be like Vatican II abomination, I'd be I'd, yeah. I'd be hardcore. Because it it does seem like that there is a little bit of a uh, sometimes a bait and switch when it comes with speaking yep. Catholics, where when they want to critique. 
Protestants, they make these ironclad claims about yep. like, you're not unified. You don't know what the canon is, all these types of things. And then you're antinomian or something. And then when they <laughs> want to be ecumenical, they're like, but you're separated brethren. And we see that the spirit works outside the, the walls. And it seems like it's just a bait and switch. Yep. And, uh, it makes it actually very difficult to have uh, mm. conversations sometimes. Yep. Yep. And I think part of the technique with Roman Catholics is just to keep pressing. I, I think as Protestants, uh, in this age of sort of media dissemination, you've had a lot of Protestants who have done this sort of work that have honestly just not been very helpful in the dialogue, um, that don't know the Roman Catholic sources well, or if they do, they consistently misread them. Uh, you know, I... I appreciate, I've, I've learned a lot from what someone like Dr. James White has put forward, but I think he makes pretty big mistakes in, in this area of ecumenical dialogue. Uh, and so I think we're sort of in a time where Protestants have to know the sources if they're going to do this sort of dialogue. They have to know the magisterial sources and as best as they can, church fathers. Now, what's nice about this era of time is that a lot of this knowledge is really accessible on YouTube now. Yeah. That wasn't true a long time ago. Um, there are so many good resources that I think Protestants who do this sort of engagement can actually start to use, but they have to know the church fathers and how the fathers are actually functioning into the arguments. Now, why do you make a distinction between sola scriptura and sola apostolica? Good question. Yep, yep. So in... in What's typically claimed, so I've actually, I've actually, it's funny. So uh, I've had this conversation with Kevin Van Hooser before. So he's, um, because he he likes, he sort of likes what Sola Apostolica is doing, but his objection is, it's similar in terms of, it gets you to a place that's very close to Sola Scripture. And I'm actually quite happy about that that, uh, outcome, that it gets you to a place that's really close to Sola Scriptura, if not basically something like Sola Scriptura. Uh, now, the reason I delineate that is because there are, I think, knockdowns to how Sola Scriptura, even at, 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 at its most sort of nuanced it today, is formulated. Uh, something that Gavin and I don't fully agree on would be the, the Episcopate. I do think, actually, that there's a very strong case to be made that uh, the Episcopal, I mean, this is why I'm Anglican, that the Episcopal order of the church is actually the correct uh, reading of texts like First Timothy three and Acts, but I don't make that argument from Scripture itself. I, I do think, even though the Episcopate makes sociological sense, that's not really enough to say it's a binding doctrine. Uh, I think what makes it a binding doctrine is the Church Fathers in the immediate wake of the Apostles, and that, and I fully agree that the Episcopate in and of itself can't be strictly even fine or even implied by good and necessary consequence just from the stuff of Scripture. Uh, so on that level, then, I, I believe in something as apostolic and binding, even though it's not uh, directly in Scripture. Now, that move is not unfamiliar in the Reformation. So like Richard Hooker, he kind of leans in that direction, uh, even though he's he's also a, he's pretty simple. He gives a lot to Presbyterians. Um, there are other Anglicans that make that sort of move. Uh, but for that reason, if I bind myself to the language of Sola Scriptura, there are things that I think are knockdowns uh, that to that specific, even Gavin's framing, uh, that I don't think it quite withstands. So some a key difference would be the Episcopate, which would, would not allow me to accept the formulation that Gavin gives, even though it's a great nuanced, I think, 
uh, helpful formulation. Because Gavin says it's soul sure that the scriptures of the soul infallible rule right. of faith. Yep. And yep. implied in that is a, is a kind of argument of sufficiency. Yes, exactly. And you're saying that it's not sufficient for a rule of faith regarding the church polity, yep. church governance, that That's there is exactly. a binding tradition of church governance that yep. you can't get from scripture or a necessary consequence from scripture. Yep. But what, why you're not Catholic is you, you would say that this actually has a deep early lineage. So you couldn't put yep. this on. This isn't like the assumption of Mary, which shows up, you know, there's five, five centuries of silence and then right. there's, there's controversy. Um, okay. Interesting. Okay. So yeah, wait, exactly right. Here's okay. So on that very nuanced definition of sola scriptura that you gave, uh, scripture is the only infallible rule right. for the church. Yep. Now, can't that come apart from a doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture? Yeah. Can't you have a view that's just sola scriptura, where you have scripture being the only infallible rule of faith yep. and not sufficient? Or is yep. sufficiency entailed by sola scriptura? I think that's what sola apostolica is, what he's saying. Yep. The nuance is he doesn't include sufficiency. But but traditional, so I'm well here, but traditional, I mean, like the Westminster Confession has sufficiency as entailed by sola yeah. scriptura, right? That's the right. it's either present or it's present in right. by good and necessary consequence. Yep. But conceptually, they do come apart. It's and, and yeah, isn't it that does. essentially just your view that conceptually they're not entailed. Yeah, so we question. can okay. Yep. So the Anglican divines always so Richard Hooker uh points out that at least in the articles. Uh, what's required is a belief that scripture is sufficient in matters pertaining to salvation. Okay. Uh, so that and that's a key clause. So for instance, it's not like a Baptist is going to hell for being a Baptist. Sure. <laughs> um, like being having the wrong ecclesiology is not going to damn you. But everyone uh, not being Baptist will. That, that, that's, that's 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 the Baptist doctrine, right? <laughs> <laughs> so you know, so ecclesiology issues, though important, they're not they're not of. Um, it's not like being wrong on them is going to damn you. I so scripture that. is sufficient. Now, for Richard Hooker, he would say it's not based off of a deduction from our principle of authority. It's just it's an empirical fact. So his his argument for the sufficiency of scripture in matters pertaining to salvation is just that scripture is clear, like yeah. is just pointing to the text and saying, how is this not sufficient? You know, is saying, well, this seems to tell us what is needed to be saved. Yeah. Uh, to believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess him as Lord. So, you know, it, why is that insufficient is what Richard Hooker would say. Uh, okay. And I think that's actually a stronger argument. And that would be a difference between the way, especially Anglican theology under the Caroline divines, the way that that developed, that would be a difference uh, in the way Anglican theology works than from Westminsterian uh, views of scripture. So that that's one way of actually articulating the distinction between the Presbyterian Dutch reformed stream and the Anglican is that is basically how they understand the doctrine of sola scriptura. Yep. If you think that sola scriptura entails sufficiency, yep. then you don't have an episcopacy. Yep. And that's even granted by the Anglicans. Right. And yep. so it seems At least like by most. But by there's most. Some right? Anglicans that, yeah. There's some okay. that I just I don't think those arguments work. But yeah. I mean this this is yep. fascinating because it shows how even within the Reformation, how you understand the doctrine of sola scriptura has a huge implication. Like yep. it, it it changes how you think about 
church government. It, yep. it, it I mean, there are all these ramifications that flow downstream from how you just articulate yep. the doctrine of sola scriptura. It's not just this one size fits all. Right. Would you right. consider then the episcopate to be, in some sense, revelatory? Yep. I do. You think yeah, it's a divine I, I revelation, like a. Yep. Yep. And there, there are actually Anglicans that disagree with me on this. So the, right. this is part of the, the high church Anglican tradition is to say, yes, it's part of revelation and it was instituted by the apostles. Now I've argued that one way to understand that, and that I think actually best sort of reconciles all of the historical data um, is to say, because Gavin has pointed out, and I think rightly that in the new Testament, Episcopi and Presbyteroi, they're used uh, interchangeably. And that's true. Linguistically, they are in the New Testament. Mm. But I think what went on there and what seems to be claimed by Ignatius and Irenaeus and others is that the form of the episcopate was there, even if the terminology wasn't. So the form of the episcopate is just one ruling priest ruling over the other priests in a given region. That's that's all it is. Uh, now, that was eventually designated with the term bishop to distinguish that that presbyter from the other presbyters. But for a long time, bishops, and actually you still find this in many Anglican liturgies, you find this in the ACNA, mm -hmm. uh, bishops are consecrated. They're not ordained, properly speaking. And the, you, you can talk about it as the ordination of a bishop, but the language used is typically consecration. And the reason for that is because one priest is being set apart to rule over the other priests is the idea. Okay. Can I push back a little bit? Yeah, please. So... Why should we think that there's only one extra doctrine that's revealed outside? Yeah. So, and maybe empirically or counterfactually, let's say it's the case that, let's say it's the case that Gavin's research on the Assumption of Mary turns out to be wrong. Yep. And, you know, we discover some other texts from Polycarp yeah. and Ignatius. And actually, lo and behold, they, they did believe in the Assumption. And yeah. we just, you know, does that have any implications for your view and now yeah. we should rethink maybe also the assumption is extra biblical and it's included in the apostolic teaching. And so, yeah, like why, why yeah. I think there's a hard stop at just this one doctrine. Yep. yep. Good question. Yeah. Yeah. So it would change in terms of uh, whether I, we should accept it. If it did go back to the apostles, I would say we should, but it wouldn't change. So a lot of Eastern Orthodox actually hold to the, the assumption of Mary. Mm -hmm. uh, they just don't think it's necessary to believe that for salvation. Right. Okay. That's, That's the part that would that yeah. wouldn't change. I see. Because if it had been necessary for, to salvation, it seems like Christians throughout all time would have believed in that. Yeah. 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 Okay. That's a key distinction. Yeah. That's, that's really important. helpful because it's, I, I remember some of these conversations I've had with Catholics, I'm like, man, it's. It, it's not even a claim about the perpetual virginity or the yeah. assumption of Mary. It's the claim that it's dogma. Yep. That's a different level. Like it, it could yep. end up being that you're right. Yeah. But to say that it is orthodoxy, it's yep. on par with the resurrection. It's, mm -hmm. it's you know, is yep. a claim that you can't, I mean, and you can't walk that back. You right. know what I mean? I mean, yep. that's 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 the hard thing. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that a lot of Roman Catholics will talk about, and what I'm discovering too, is that there is a sort of very airtight um, presentation of Catholicism by Catholic apologists to Protestants. And then there's actual Catholicism <laughs> that's, that's lived out. But one of the ways that it's presented is that Catholicism solves the problem of interpretive pluralism. Yeah. It's a classic yeah. trope, you know, 
every process becomes their own pope, which actually when Gavin debated Jimmy Aiken, Jimmy Aiken actually said, he said, I don't think Roman Catholic apologists should, should continue saying that about yep. Protestants, which I was like, that's, that's great. Good, yeah. That's yeah, progress, yeah, right? Progress. Yeah. Um, but one of the things is that they say, when you mention how the magisterium, they are this interpretive yeah. organism, this mechanism, because that way, you know, everybody in the Bible studies aren't just coming with different doctrines. And how do you determine what's heresy and all those types of things? That's a long-winded way of saying, what do we make of the problem? Yes. Supposed yeah. problem of interpretive pluralism, where everyone yeah. just comes up with their own yep. doctrines because of sola scripture. Yeah, that's a good question. So I'll I'll critique Rome's solution and then give a constructive one. Okay. Okay. So here's why I don't think the answer to that question is an infallible magisterium. If you look at a doctrine like Amoris Laetitia, so Amoris Laetitia was promulgated to deal with the question of, of the divorce and remarried. Historically, Catholic teaching has taught that if you were validly married, and all that's required for a valid marriage is, you know, the ratification, if you're a non-Christian, the ratification of your community with the intention to marry for life uh, and to not divorce, to, but to, to do this for life. Um and to bear children, which was, a, you know, that was a common part of marriage, whether you were Christian or not, for a very long time. Um, and in Christian, in Catholic circles, whether you were married under the bishop, in Protestant circles, it's sort of treated analogously to paganism. Um, so it's still valid marriage, so long as you have the ratification of, of the community and such. Uh, now, the problem with that is given the uprise of divorce, you have a lot of people now that are divorced and remarried. This isn't just, a, it's not a societal taboo in the same way it was 60, 70 years ago. Uh, so you have this massive problem in the Catholic church of the divorce and remarried, where if they're remarried, that's not a, a real marriage under most most circumstances. Now, there are di dioceses where it's really easy to get an, an annulment, where it's mm -hmm. kind of joked about that annulment is Catholic divorce. Um, but typically, annulment was only supposed to apply if you could discern that, like, for instance, maybe two people had a sham marriage or shotgun marriage, mm -hmm. or they got married but not really understanding what they were doing, like they didn't really intend to, to marry for life or something like that. Um, it was meant to apply to those circumstances, not to just whenever you want a Catholic divorce. Um, so the problem is that in Catholic theology, in moral theology, you have all of these people that are now part of the church that might be on their second or third marriage. Maybe they become Catholic on their second or third marriage, and they have all of these kids with this, you know, their third spouse. Um, so what do they do now? They're intending, they become Catholic, but they're, so they're intending monogamy now, uh, but they might not have before. Uh, so it creates this problem where if you're consistent, you have to say, yeah, they're not married. It's not a real marriage. And mm -hmm. so that means that every time they sleep together, they're fornicating mm -hmm. uh, these, these people, which is a mortal sin. Um, so Amoris Laetitia tries to make accommodations for that. Now, I bring that up because there are many interpretations of Amoris Laetitia. Mm -hmm. It's a magisterial teaching, and there are dozens of interpretations on how to apply that. Mm -hmm. There are dozens of interpretations of how we should understand the Catholic Church's uh, uh, pursuit of the abolition of the death penalty, which is also magisterial. Having a magisterium doesn't absolve you from the problem of interpretive pluralism because that's a problem we face as human beings whenever we're dealing with language. Mm. You know, if we're reading a document or you're you're listening to someone else, you're always doing an act of interpretation. 
So in Roman Catholic circles, once you swim in those circles for a while, you find that there's a lot of fighting about magisterial mm. uh, interpretation and how and the level with which a magisterial document should be understood. Mm. There's debate, for instance, over whether the declaration of the invalidity of, of Anglican orders, which happened in 1896 under Apostolic Akurai, there's debate over whether that's an ex cathedra pronunciation or not. Some theologians think it is, like Francis Sullivan and Cardinal Avery Dulles. Some some don't, like Reverend Beckett Cook, who's a bishop. Um, that's that's a that's a big disagreement. That's mm. not a that, that affects your relationship with Anglicans mm. and with other Christians. So having a, a magisterium doesn't solve the problem. Okay, so then given that, given that that's a false solution, what's a good solution? Here's what I think the impulse of the magisterium was that's good, that magisterial Protestantism recovers. So if you remember Luther, um, Calvin, the Anglican divines, they all distance themselves from the Anabaptists. And it comes down to really this principle of like, obviously, there are there are issues like baptism, but those issues are sort of like hovering around the extent to which you think about the scripture as the principle of authority. Uh, Calvin, Luther, and others are still willing to use the church fathers to help them read scripture. Yeah. That, that's been a part of magisterial Protestant interpretation for a very long time, whereas Anabaptist interpretation has been more hesitant about that. Uh, and that reflects in, the, in the, the way those traditions develop differently. Mm -hmm. uh, now, uh, I think the solution from the Protestants is that the consensus of the church Catholic exercises a strong evidential force on our interpretation. So it, it's not that it can't be overturned. Like if, if there's an absolute contradiction, that's like impossible to reconcile with scripture. So to give an example, most church fathers, I disagree with William Witt on a lot of things about ordination, but he's an Anglican priest, teaches at Trinity School for Ministry. He's made the argument that women were excluded from ordination because the church fathers thought women were inferior. Now, I don't agree that that's the reason they were excluded from uh, ordination to the presbytery. But it is true that the vast majority of church fathers thought women were just ontologically inferior to men, they, and they were better than their pagan contemporaries. <laughs> um, so that's that's a difficult history. There is a history of literal misogyny, of yeah. women hatred that we all have to deal with in just human history as a whole. Um, now, given that, right, that's even though that was a majority opinion of the fathers, I, I think that's impossible to reconcile with scripture. Mm. Uh, this idea that women are somehow less the image of God than men. Uh, so it's not that scripture can't overturn the consensus, but that if there is a consensus, you need a really good reason to overturn it. Mm. And I think that magisterial Protestant interpretation actually does have a solution to the problem that that came out of the Reformation, which is this attentiveness to the broad voice of the church and submission to the broad voice of the church Catholic uh, as a whole. How does that work, though, with like Arianism or when, when you have a widespread kind of area? Yeah, great question. Yep. Great question. So and then that's where so the Protestant principle is those two twin things of consensus and consensus through time, too. So that's important as well. So they would point to the Arian crisis and say, yeah, most of the world was Arian and woke up Arian, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you look at sort of the history of that, a lot of that was owing to political pressure. A lot of that was uh, because they didn't want to die um, or they didn't want to lose their bishoprics or whatever. 
Uh, but you look at sort of the history, the church through time, and that's also a kind of like, it is a novo. And then, of course, you compare it to scripture, and scripture then serves as an ultimate judge over that. Uh, so there are sort of multiple principles we're using. We're using the evidential force of the church, of the, the sort of collective Catholic voice of the church, which extends through time, not just at any individual moment. And we look back to what scripture says to overturn anything that if there is something that is a voice said through time, scripture would expose that. So, so what you're saying is on the Catholic view, what they're doing is they're just pushing the question back one step or they're, right. they're saying there's, there might be lack of clarity at the level of scripture, but we have the magisterium. Right. And your response is, but look at the magisterium that needs right. interpretation too, because look at all these different interpretations of these right. documents on marriage, these documents on whatever, on how we should think about Anglicans or the Eastern Orthodox. And so it's almost like, which, which is the worst bullet to bite? Yeah. Like should should yep. we scripture? There's a perspicacity there. And yep. if, if a Roman Catholic wants to say, <clears throat> no, look, the magisterium is clear. Then a Protestant can equally just say, well, yeah, if, if you think those documents are clear, why not just think that scripture is clear too? Yep. Or at least clear enough to arrive at the something of a correct view or close to the truth. Right. And so, yeah, I, I think that that response is really compelling. Well, I think about people who are saying like, I started reading the church fathers, you know, and people come up with all their interpretations and I'm like, reading the church fathers, it's hard to interpret in scripture. I mean, yeah. like you go through, you're like, what the, yeah. and, then, and the fact that yeah. it can actually be fallible too, you're like, <laughs> you know, and then it's like, well, you know, you know, is the average Christian able to understand Galatians and they don't know theology and Greek? And I'm like, and then they're like, here, read Ignatius, yeah, read, read Augustine <laughs> in the Latin. You know what I mean? Read all these encyclicals. And I'm like, man, I yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, basically become an expert in church history. Like, yeah, exactly. I, one of the things my wife Sophia said through the process, because you know, I would come with these claims. You, you initially in Catholic apologetics encounter a lot of these claims, like the church fathers mm -hmm. together thought X. And like they might cite one or two who did, but then you read the fathers and you're like, wait a second, they didn't agree on it. <laughs> they disagreed on. Uh, and so she, my wife has said, you know, I've learned to just distrust whenever a Catholic says the church fathers said X. I've learned to just say, all right, I, that's immediately dubious. <laughs> you know? like, I just doubt the, and it's sad. And, and obviously there are a lot of good Catholic scholars too. Um, but, you know, a lot of times it does tend to be the case that when you encounter Catholic apologists, you kind of have to check, check their work because yeah. there's a appeal to consensi that often just don't, that often just doesn't exist. I just did an interview with Ansi Camel of uh, he, he he wrote an article on first things about how Catholicism made him Protestant. One of the things he talks about in our interview is um, how he had to. It, it, it was he, he talked about John Henry Newman, who's kind of just mm -hmm. like that's like the guy, you know what yep. I mean, for, for high church Anglicans want to be Catholic. And you said that there was kind of a, he was uncomfortable with the skepticism Newman had about us being able to make personal judgments. Yep. Um, and really that there's this need for certainty. So like you said, why do we need, it's, it's kind of like if, if, if the first premise is like, we need infallible certainty to know what is true doctrine, what's false, what's a canon, what's not canonical. Yeah. And then if you grant that Protestants lose, yep. <laughs> you know what I mean? But yep. then that first claim though, like, for example, the classic thing is you need, you don't have an infallible table of contents to know what's in the Bible. Yeah. Right. You don't know what the canon is. No. 
And um, the question is, why why do you need an infallible yep. table of contents? Yep. Um, well, yeah, speak it, to that. And it's a problem that actually, when you push it back, you find out Roman Catholics have it too. All of us yeah. do, right? Mm-hmm. If if why do we believe Jesus rose from the dead? Mm-hmm. Right? Presumably, that's you can't assume the infallibility of the magisterium in order to get there. So mm-hmm. all of us are going to use evidential grounds or grounds of judgment that are identified as fallible. But I have a very strong confidence mm-hmm. at this point in my life that Jesus rose from the dead. You know, or when I'm married, right? I have, see, John Piper used this analogy and it, it stuck with me because when I became a Christian and uh, I turned 18, you know, you start early on. If you become Christians, it's often easy to like, this is true in any age, but to doubt your salvation, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and Piper has this analogy where, um, he was like, okay, like you can introspect all day. Like how, how do you know you have real faith? How do you know this? He's like, but here's the thing. I, I have like 100% certainty that my wife is not cheating on me, mm-hmm. you know? And like, I don't even give that a second thought, you know, uh, cause I, I know her that's not infallible, but it's like so strong that it basically might as well be right. Um, and that really resonates. It resonates with me to this day because now married, I'm, it's the exact same way. I don't, I don't have any question in my mind about that, even though like it's not infallible. And that's that's true in most things in life. And when we whenever we make judgments, uh, we're usually doing this off of means that aren't technically protected by a charism of infallibility. Right. Mm-hmm. That would be very it would make life very difficult if we had mm-hmm. to. We had to have a charism and infallibility and make any sort of judgments. So Roman Catholics make this judgment that Jesus rose from the dead on the basis of fallible means. They can't appeal to an infallible magisterium, even though lots of people disagree about the resurrection of Jesus. Well, if you can do that, if evidence can give you that kind of confidence in the face of disagreement, then the problem of disagreement itself Shouldn't shouldn't make us doubt that evidential means can give us a high degree of confidence. I, I mean, yeah, it, it seems as you're saying it and saying all this out loud, it, it makes me think that there's a tension even in some of the Catholic commitments here. So on the one hand, they want to say, look, if you read the Vatican II documents, we're not we're not adding anything new. Development mm-hmm. is just about expositing the deposit of faith. Yep. But also if they want to insist on the importance of the magisterium for like, no, you as a Christian just cannot arrive at these true facts that are necessary for your salvation without the church. Like that just seems to be in direct tension with the Vatican II documents that say, well, no, the the church is just expositing. It's just developing that which is in scripture. But if they also want to insist on the importance of the magisterium for you would not have access to these facts if it were not for the magisterium. Then it's it, it sounds like it's not it's not just expositing. It's not just developing anymore. You yep. think that they're actually adding things. Like there's yes. there's a, there's a new revelatory power that's yep. yeah. And, and maybe it's not a flat out contradiction, but it's definitely a tension in those two. Yep. And maybe some Catholics are prone to the former and some to the latter. Yeah. Um, but there's at least a superficial tension there. I think I think so. I think that's right because I don't think you can derive. I I just I don't even see. Here's what's interesting about Vatican One, right? In the 19th century, Newman actually talks about this in some of his letters before uh, the Assumption was done, or for um I think the Immaculate Conception in Vatican One, and then the the Assumption mm-hmm. was a few decades later. Um, before the Immaculate Conception was dogmatized, Newman talks about there being quite a lot of disagreement about that. And of course, in the wake of Vatican One, you have the split with the Old Catholic Church. 
that's where they start to emerge. Um, and the reason for this is because a lot of Catholic theologians at the time were saying, how can we require this for, even if we think this is true, how can we require this for salvation if we can point to church fathers who thought Mary sinned? Mm-hmm. Or we, we can, we're like, you know, we can, yeah. we can, and that's true in the tradition uh, that you can point to, to many, several church fathers that didn't think Mary was sinless. Mm. How do you say that it's necessary for salvation if you have canonized saints who didn't believe that? Which is, I think that's a good argument. I think that yeah, stands yeah. to this day. I don't think any Catholic apologists would, because a lot of people will say, you know, you're separated brethren. Yeah. You know, yeah Protestants, yeah. like, are they just talking out of both sides of the mouth by saying you can deny the assumption of Mary and still good be question. saved? So I, mean, I, I that? Yeah. So I think. I don't think they're doing it in bad faith. So Michael Lofton and I, Michael Lofton at at Reason and Theology, we've talked a little bit about this. And from his perspective, I don't don't think this is a good interpretation of um, there's no salvation outside of the, the Catholic Church. His interpretation of that is if you know that the Catholic Church is like, would you convert if you knew that the Catholic Church was the true Church of Christ? And if your answer is no to that, then you're damned. Well, like, you know, most of us would say, yeah, well, of course, if I knew the Catholic Church was the church, of course I'd become Catholic, right? And so he's received a lot of criticism for that because that basically just, like, takes all of the teeth off of all of yeah. those declarations yeah. of time. Because, like, who wouldn't if they knew That's right. And maybe you'd have one or two people of who then, you know, their their allegiance to Jesus gets exposed, but, like— you know, that's that's just not if Cal if Luther knew that the Catholic Church was the pure church, he would have been Catholic. You know, uh, so it's it takes the teeth. It's not a serious reading of of all of history, like it, despite what he tries to do. So he is talking. He's not he's not trying, I think, to talk out of both sides of his mouth. He does genuinely think Protestants can be saved. But the only way I think you can get there is if you seriously distort magisterial documents. Now, my friend Eric Yabara is a little bit more consistent. He does think like we've talked and he thinks I'm in peril of being damned. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's more consistent, I think. Uh, even though I still I still disagree with, he, he has a wider view than I think. Just in peril? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> peril sounds very, exactly. I mean. I, the peril's not damned, exactly. Yeah. So I do, and I do. more think, centuries in purgatory. <laughs> right, yeah, it could be that. And so I, I think, um, I think Eric's view, yeah, we of course disagree about this, but I do think his view is, even though it's it's closer than Lofton's view, uh, I I still don't think it yeah, works. It, it almost sounds like, well, look, if you knew I was right, would you agree with me? Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> like, well, I mean, yeah. If I knew you you were right, isn't that agreeing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, to Eric's credit, uh, he wouldn't. He wouldn't take that framing of it. He right. does think, like, obviously Luther thought he was right. Is that? Uh, but he thinks he thinks Luther was almost certainly damned. <laughs> but wow. you know, um, well, Luther probably a... thought he was almost certainly damned. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it goes both ways. Like, right. right. I like this though because so often the stakes of the of the conversation are missing. I do think that there is. I think part of your work is you're trying to say like that. Sep- it's like, are you going to weigh the separated or the brethren? You know what I mean? Like, right. which one? You know. And my right. question always like, what do you? How separated are we? Like, am I right. hanging off a cliff or am I like in another room? You know what I mean? Right. Like, and yep. but the brethren part I think is important. Yes. Um, but there does seem to be a lot at stake. How do you weigh? Uh, let me ask you this way: What do you see as the future for ecumenical dialogue? Yep. Yep. And how does that? 
Yeah. How do you look toward possible reunification? Yes. While yep. also recognizing the stakes are high because yep. of some of the things that you just mentioned. Yep. Yep. That's a great question. I'm I'm much actually more <laughs> different people have different opinions on this take, and I understand it. I'm I'm much more optimistic. And the reason for that um, He's Francis. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> and the, because he's making it increasingly harder to hold to magisterial infallibility. Yeah. Now, what's, what's interesting, I, I personally have mixed feelings towards him. I, I do think he's a brother in Christ. So interestingly, I have a higher view of the Pope than a lot of traditional Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I do think he's a brother in Christ. I do think there he shows actually stellar uh, charity at times. Um, I really like that. There are a lot of things about him that I like. Uh, now, the problem, and I actually agree with his pastoral instructions in the Morris Laetitia. So it's basically like, okay, if they can't live as brother and sister, like we can't break them up. So maybe it's possible to give them communion, even though they're in this like weird union after a period of discernment. Now, it's completely inconsistent with Roman Catholic moral theology, right? If they're just foreign, you would never say that to two people who are just like, you know, living together. And just fornicating, and they're like, "Oh, well, I can't, I can't get married. It's just so hard, right?" Like you would never say they could receive communion if they're just, you know, not willing to stop having sex and and or get married and or whatever, right? Uh, so I think the pastoral instruction does entail conceding something Protestants have said. You know, for most Protestants, and actually this is true in, in Eastern Orthodoxy as well. No matter what you think about the ethics of divorce. Most Protestants have been willing to say, even ones that that say you shouldn't divorce under any circumstances whatsoever, most of them have been willing to say, but if you do, even if you contract a second marriage and it was there are sinful aspects of that, it's still a legitimate marriage, so long as it's between one man and one woman. Mm-hmm. Most Protestants have been willing to say that through time. The East says that through time. You can find a lot of church fathers who say that. Mm-hmm. Um, the fathers, of course, on this issue, like a lot of issues are divided on this. Uh, and what's interesting is that the pastoral instruction in Amoris Laetitia sort of assumes it, the only way it can work is if if you actually adopt a kind of Protestant slash Eastern Orthodox theology of marriage. It doesn't work on its own terms. So mm-hmm. given that something like that has been promulgated, it makes it very, I mean, that that document itself caused, I think, a lot of people to become set up at contests and just say, well, yeah, Pope Francis is not the Pope, which, again, at that point, you might as well just be Protestant. Um, yeah, I know. I'm like, you're not the first guys to say the Pope is yeah. the Pope. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. actually a very, that's been done before yep. and many yep. times. Yep. It's something Michael often rightly points out to set, mm. set up a contest, that basically they're just Protestants, which is true, actually. Um, so, yeah, I think at that point, you might as well just become Protestant if you split off from the Pope. But if you accept his instruction, that completely undermines Catholic moral theology. And that's a, I think that's a huge problem. And I think he might keep doing things like this. Yeah, it's a it's crazy times we live in. I mean, again, referencing my my interview with with Ansi, he, he actually mentioned that Francis wrote a letter to the patriarchs, the Eastern Orthodox patriarchs, and said, if reunification were possible, the papacy would have to operate differently than it has in the past. Now, he didn't say they'd go back to a first among equals or something like that. But uh, I was like, whoa, Mm. is there a passage in Revelation on this? Like, (laughs) what is happening? Yeah. I mean, that's exciting. And, you know, again, I actually really appreciate his, his spirit. 
I just think if he thought it through to its logical implications, it would involve accepting the Reformation, mm. which would be incredible. Like that yeah. would just be a stellar and amazing. It would be literally Luther's dream come true, right? 500 years later. Yeah. So um, is, that, is that part of your, if you were to paint for us just like a quick picture of what does a reunified church yes. look like if, you know, we have a miracle tomorrow, yep. West yep. Roman Catholic Protestants, yeah, what does it look like? How how would you? What's, what's the vision? Yeah, so this this vision would it'll it won't. I don't think it would be immediately agreed by all Protestants either. And okay. I know I have convincing to do of of many people on all sides. Okay. Here's what I think it would look like. Um, I do see in the fathers, and I think this is there's precedent in scripture for the bishop of Rome to be a kind of pastor of the Church Catholic. Um, I'm okay with that. Philip Melanchthon was okay with that as well. Um, coming under the Pope as kind of a pastor of the church rather than whatever he is now. Um, and that first among equals doctrine, great. I'm actually, I don't have any qualms with that. So it would look like, I think, coming under communion with the Bishop of Rome, but then on Rome's part, it would, and the restoration of the Episcopate in, mm-hmm. in, Protestant, uh, in Protestantism, on Rome's part, it would involve the renunciation of magisterial infallibility, the rejection mm-hmm. of the Council of Trent. Of Vatican I and Vatican II. Okay. Um, and so it would involve going back to and then reviving the discussions about the Reformation. And my hope, of course, would be settling those in favor of Regan's, of a kind of outcome of Regensburg. Uh, so at the Regensburg colloquy, uh, Protestants and Catholics actually came to what seemed like an agreement on justification. Oh, wow. Which is interesting that there's precedent for that. Um, so that's, you know, I think that's in- now, of course. You know, the Pope thought Catholics made too many concessions. Luther thought Protestants made too many concessions. And, you know, Anthony Lane has argued both Catholics and Luther just misread Regensburg, which is fine. Um, But I think it would look like um, reviving some of those discussions. And I would say, of course, as a Protestant, settling them in favor of the Reformation. Um, Interestingly, Luther was not opposed to an Episcopate. And Presbyterianism, as leaks as I understand it, is not necessarily intrinsically opposed to that insofar as you can have a ruling presbyter, hmm. right? And then the presbytery is basically a diocese at that point. Um, so I, I do think it would, it would, to sum that up, look like the restoration of the episcopate, a commitment to sola apostolica as the, as the principle throughout the church. Uh, and then it would look like uh, Rome it coming under the Bishop of Rome, but then on the other on the other hand, Rome also renouncing mm. magisterial infallibility, the Council of Trent, things like that. It's interesting because it seems like, in principle, Protestants actually have the bandwidth to accept that, but I think but so. Rome doesn't. Yep. As they 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 would. I mean, <clears throat> and when you basically said. Yeah, all Rome would have to do is papal infallibility. Vatican. Yeah, yeah. It's like that's all. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Which yeah, is huge. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't minimize. Yeah, you know, I, I, I do think that would be huge, and that would be Rome radically repudiate, repudiating its self understanding. Yeah, yeah. For hundred years, becoming essentially a Protestant church. Now, what's interesting about this, right, is in the 17th century, there was a patriarch of Constantinople named Cyril Lucaris. Um, and Cyril Lucaris was a Calvinist patriarch of Constantinople. I love him. I like him already. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so he accepted the Reformation and he accepted the Episcopate. Now, shortly after, like within a generation, he gets deposed and, you know, declared a heretic. 
So, you know, it's kind of a bummer. Yeah. Um, but in, you know, his vision, I think, Cyril Lucaris's vision, what he wanted to see happen in orthodoxy was the, the maintaining of the episcopate of the patriarchates as well throughout the orthodox world, but the acceptance of the primacy of scripture, the apostolic teaching and reformed theology he actually wanted for the Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, that's a very, like, you know, I, I look at that vision and I'm like, you know, that's basically what Anglicanism was, you know, for until theological liberalism, you know, made mm -hmm. a mess of things. But um, that kind of, it essentially became an Eastern Anglicanism, or I guess we, became, <laughs> my bishop calls us Western Orthodoxy. Yeah, I love that. I like that. I like that. You know, I, in a past interview with uh, Michael Haken, of, he said Southern uh, Baptist Seminary. He's a, a he's great. History. And yeah. I asked him about the Episcopate, and he said, you know, he said <clears throat> he had an interesting comment. Obviously, he's not he's he's Baptist, but he was like, um, he said, well, in America, like we functionally have bishops. Yep. I mean, he's like, we've got John MacArthur. Yep. Yeah. You know, like the late Tim Keller. Yep. You know what I mean? Like we, we had, we had Billy Graham at one point. Yeah. I mean, he's yep. like, and he's a little tongue in cheek, but he's saying that in principle, we still esteem them as first among equals. We don't yep. give them infallibility, but you know, you look on, I mean, even right now I've got Calvin's commentaries on my yep. shelf and I've got a bunch of books by well-known theologians and authors yep. and things. It's not exact one-to-one, -one, but at sure. least in principle, functionally, we do sort of organically give these people, you know, uh, a, a kind Respect of bishop-like. There's a little bit yeah. of authority. I mean, yeah. 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 That was, you know, it's funny. That actually is part of, and that was part of Richard. It wasn't his whole argument. Part of, part of his argument from natural law was actually exactly that for the Episcopate, that people are ten, tend towards this anyway. You know, and so it makes sense that God in his wisdom would just make those structures visible in the church. You think Gavin would be the Protestant patriarch? Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'd be for it. I told him before, I was like, look, like, because, you know, my, 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 he knows my views on, on sort of, you know, apostolic succession and things like this. But I've told him before, I'm like, you would make a great priest. <laughs> like, you know, I would, I would really want him to be a priest or a bishop and eventually a bishop. And yeah, that would be. Bishop Gavin, I could I could serve under that guy. <laughs> you know? Well, we, we just call them seminary presidents. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. We give them like podcasts and radio shows and yeah, book we, deals. We saw the main speakers at that's conferences. Right. Yeah, that that's yeah. <laughs> but uh, man, John, this was fantastic. Is so informative. Yeah, this was a great uh, uh, interview. Appreciate you uh, you know taking the time to talk with us about it, and we'll put a link to your channel. Uh, so make sure people can check it out because I think you're doing a lot of great work over at Anglin Aesthetics. And uh, just, man, hope you keep doing the, the things you're doing yeah. and having the kind of dialogues you're having. And we've we've really benefited from it. So Yeah. Uh, and th thank you both for having me. And I'll I'll share your guys' channel as well. I really I've I've been listening to some of the interviews since. So that's that's been you guys are doing really good work too in making theological knowledge uh, just more widely available. That's really an important project, I think. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Follow us on Instagram. That'll Preach Podcast is our handle. You can also go to our website, that'llpreach.io. Leave a review for us. Say something nice about us. And uh, appreciate you guys listening. See you guys next week. <laughs>